0: Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Our guest today is Sanjeev Agrawal. He is the president and COO of Lean Toss. We are proud to have Lean as an ACHE Premier Corporate Partner. Our Premier Corporate Partners play a vital role in supporting ACHE's vision and mission to advance healthcare leadership excellence. Now, before joining Lean Sanjeev was Google's first head of product marketing and led three successful startups. He was CEO of Aloka, which was acquired by Motorola, Vice President of Products and Marketing at Tell Me Networks, which was acquired by Microsoft, and Founder and CEO of CollegeFeed, which was acquired by After College. He started his career at McKinsey & Company and Cisco Systems. Now, Sanjeev graduated with BS and MS degrees in electrical engineering and computer science from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has been named by Becker's Hospital Review as one of the top entrepreneurs innovating in healthcare. Sanjeev is also the co-author of the book, Better Healthcare Through Math. With that introduction, Sanjeev, welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. All right, we're going to be talking a lot about AI on this podcast, so let's start with the basics. And from your perspective, how do you define artificial intelligence?
1: You know, there are many complicated ways of defining artificial intelligence. People talk about how it's teaching a computer how to think like a human being. I don't think computers think just as of yet, so that's a bit of a stretch. (laughs) Uh, There are things about the Turing test when it comes to artificial general intelligence, I think a much simpler uh, explanation is probably worth playing with to almost any phenomenon. And the way I like to think about artificial intelligence is simply to be able to predict what's coming next by looking at historical patterns of data, speech, text, video, So whether it's uh, Zillow being able to predict what your house is likely going to be worth because they've seen a thousand sales of Mm -hmm. homes based on the characteristic of a home, whether it's Spotify, you know, sort of recommending music for you to listen to based on other people like you and what they have liked, Mm -hmm. where they've taken their characteristics together, Uh, whether it's Netflix or YouTube making recommendations to you or Google suggesting ads to you, all of these things have one thing in common, which is they're predicting the likelihood of something happening that is based on things that have already happened. So I call it, simply put, know what's coming. You know, mm-hmm. if I have three words to describe AI, AI is know what's coming and that applies to Chat GPT because really what ChatGPT is doing is predicting the next word and then going back and predicting the next word based on historical occurrences of that word as part of a sequence of words that it has seen so far. So know what's coming is the best
0: way, I, I I think, the simplest way to understand AI. So let's apply know what's coming now to our listeners in the healthcare space. We're talking about hospitals specifically. So what kind of impact will AI have then on patient access, the workforce, financial resources, all of these things that come together, these aspects of the hospital system?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you can think about know what's coming, being applied to various domains, and I'll get to healthcare very quickly, but let me give you one other example. You know, doesn't it amaze all of us that when we walk into a UPS store and we say we want to ship a package, that UPS store had no idea that we were going to walk in and give them a package to ship. Right. And they have thousands of truck drivers and thousands of airplanes and hundreds of hubs in order to be able to deliver against the promise. You might want your package shipped next day delivery or two-day delivery or week-long delivery. They had no way of knowing that. But what they have predicted is of the 50,000 zip codes in this country or 41,000 zip codes in this country, the likelihood that a certain zip code is going to assemble a set of packages to be shipped to another zip code. So if you think about the enormity and complexity of the problem of managing your entire infrastructure between any of those 50,000 zip codes, and any zip code might have 10 UPSs, if it's a large zip code, for example. So what they're doing is that they know what's coming from the perspective of the demand that is going to come. And they're aligning their supply to be able to meet that demand. And from an operational perspective, when it comes to healthcare the exact same thing could be done. Let me give you a few examples. If we were able to predict based on historical usage of say infusion chairs in cancer centers, what the likelihood is of the number of patients who are going to come on a given day of the week and the length of their infusion treatment way in advance of that actually happening, knowing what's coming, our ability to actually pre-engineer the way in which those patients come in can lead to a situation where uh, cancer centers can see more patients and those patients wait less. Why? Because much like the constraints of UPS, every cancer center has constraints like when does the lab open? When does pharmacy open? When do my oncologists work? When? Um, what are the shifts that my nurses have? When does the first shift star- start? Very similar constraints to other asset-intensive, um, highly complicated industries like Transportation and package delivery. I'll give you another example. If we could predict the number of surgical cases that are likely going to be done, know what's coming from a demand perspective by location, by hour of day, by day of week, our ability to align staffing and our ability to make sure that the right surgeon has the right amount of time available in NOR. And the last example I'll give you is um imagine if we, based on if there, if I have a 400-bed hospital, length of stay is a big issue for every health system in this country. Part of the reason length of stay is such a big issue is that the facts that are needed to predict the likelihood of who is going to be medically ready for discharge are missing. EHRs don't do this very well. Health systems don't do this very well. But imagine if across the patient journey, we could have a much more believable and credible and correct view of which of these 400 patients are going to be medically ready for discharge when, based on grouping them or clustering them with other patients similar to them we've seen in the past. We've seen this movie before, much like the Spotify, the Netflixes of the world, just to make it real for you, are looking at me as a 54-year-old South Asian male that uses an American Express, lives in the Bay Area, listens to this kind of music on my iPhone, They're very unique characteristics to me. So instead of saying the general American public, and let me group uh, Sanjeev with the general American public, they're grouping me with people who resemble me based on certain characteristics that I tell them. Very similarly, every patient has characteristics that resemble that of others. What you can do with that is if you can be precise about who's likely to be medically ready, you can sequence discharges on a given day. So this big problem of ED boarding and PACU boarding, where patients are waiting a long time to get beds, some of them that can be reduced just by simply having a much better sense of what's coming, a much better sense of which patients are going to be ready for discharge. So three examples in very different spaces of how you can unlock capacity. There's 5,000 hospitals in this country who, between them, have put $2 trillion of assets in the ground. It's the one industry that uses its assets terribly. And I say this kindly because if we're going to solve this problem of patient access, it's not a bunch of CEOs talking about health equity. It's about using tools to actually create the capacity within the constraints of existing staffing, within the constraints of the existing infrastructure to be able to do more with less. And if you do this right, Every health system can do process 10 to 15% more patients, increase EBITDA by three to five points, much like if you look at airports, what airports have done is they've they've been able to, if you look at Atlanta airport processing, you know, there are 5,000 flights that take off and land at Atlanta airport every day. There used to be 500 flights that would take off and land 20 years ago. They've used this ability to forecast volume and match supply and demand minute for minute using air traffic control. So what health systems need is air traffic control that can predict what's coming and then prescribe actions to make sure they can accommodate all that volume.
0: So those fantastic examples you just laid out there, and if we shift from the technology into somebody's listenings, they're getting excited, what kind of things do they have to do as far as maybe looking in the mirror of their organization to say, are we ready? How do we take some of what you're just describing, take this technology and apply it to our day to day operations? Yeah, so...
1: You know, technology has to be the cornerstone because all the process improvement and the Six Sigma and going to the Temple of Gemba and putting yellow sticky notes in the world is not going to change this. Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) But that being said, I could also throw the most sophisticated technology over the wall. But if my people aren't willing to adopt change and if my workflows are not, going to adapt to change. I'll give you another very practical example. I'm an old man and I started flying back in the in the 90s when I walked into an airport. Um, I had to always go to this desk where I had to check in and a human being gave me a boarding pass. And then I'd have to go to another desk and I'd have to wait in line where a human being helped me check my bags in, right? Those two roles are gone. Technology helps me check in a day before even check my bags in and all I need to do is drop them self-service. Now the people manning the front desks at airports there, that phenotype isn't someone who can smile at me and make me feel good. These are problem solvers, why? Because the only reason I talk to them is if I need to change my flight, or if I forgot my passport, or there's some complex problem I'm trying to take care of. So I, I think this is a reality that health systems have to just start facing that in a world of AI, they don't have a choice. This idea of health, health economics are so bad and the patient demand is rising so fast that adopting technology to solve the problem scalably is not an option. That being said, you know, my mother loves doing garage sales, throwing eBay at her and saying, mom, use eBay is not going to work like she likes meeting the neighbors, she likes saying hi, she likes putting that thing in two toasters on on this, I love my mother to death, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm just saying until I can prove to her that it's in her enlightened self-interest to take a picture of the two toasters and put them on a website and be done with it. And someone will magically tell her that they want the toaster or not. Until that, the hearts and minds of the people using these tools understand that fundamentally, this is going to simplify their life. Nothing changes. So there's three elements to what I call the magic equation. There is the AI piece of it, without which nothing happens. The and AI has gotten a bad rap because it's all discombobulated into, oh, it's Jack GPT, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We've been you know AI for 25 years. Yeah. You know, open AI just did something spectacular, but that's just an extension of natural language processing. Okay. And it's going to change the world, yes, but. That's what woken a lot of healthcare executives up to AI, but this AI notion of know what's coming has, has has been around for a while. If you combine that, you, you if you can embed that AI into easy-to-use software tools that frontline staff like to use and understand that there's a lot of value in changing their daily process and behavior, that's when magic happens. That's where you get Airline economics have gone from every airline except Southwest losing money over the last 25 years to now every airline making money despite COVID. And that took all three things. It required AI, it required changes in the workflow and core process, and it required
0: retraining people into doing things differently. So as we talk about transitioning some of these healthcare systems, what are some of the key barriers that you're seeing? And then once those barriers are, are you know, have been put aside, what are some of the success stories that you've seen personally come out of an organization that has been able to successfully adopt some of this technology? You know, we work with uh,
1: 200 health systems. I guarantee you there's a very big overlap between ACHE members and the 200 health systems yep. we work with. And these are um, these are the ones that have had the leadership and the governance to understand the value of using uh, tools like the ones we provide. So I'll give you just a few success stories. Um, Places like Novant Health, places like Baptist Jacksonville, places like Common Spirit, places like University of Colorado Health, and I could go on and on and on, have had results like doing 10 to 15% more surgical volume with the same number of staff and the same number of ORs. Infusion centers we talked about that have been able to accommodate 15 to 20% more volume with patients waiting 60 to 70% less between the hours of 10 and two, which are the busiest hours for a cancer center. We've had health systems like Sarasota Memorial, um, like Baptist of Arkansas, where the length of stay has gone down by half a day. Now, if you're in the business, you know what that means. A half a day reduction in length of stay on average, length of stay say being four days, that's a very substantial benefit to patient throughput. We've had systems that have been able to accommodate bed turns of uh, 1.5 times what they used to have with the same amount of staffing. Now, these are very meaningful metrics because if an OR can do 30 more cases per OR per year and you have 50 ORs and you can do 1,500 more cases without adding cost during business hours, that's pure margin to your bottom line. And given the margins of health systems today, which are like grocery system margins, you know, I think grocery stores make more money than health systems do. So that idea of, of you're living at the edge and a little bit of a push when you think about OR volume or you think about length of stay, which are sort of the economic backbones of hospitals, that's massive. The barriers you talked about, there are quite a few barriers. I call them sacred cows. We have a whole chapter in the book. With my name and the way I look, I'm allowed to say that. People don't uh, frown at me when I say sacred cows. But the big sacred cows are my EHR can do this. My IT team can do this. I'm not ready for this yet. Um, you know, I'll get this for free someday in some future version of Epic or Cerner or whatever is being released. The Which is kind of, Sad because in in some ways it's uh, this this fear of of, of adopting technology because uh, and sort of outsourcing the thinking of technology based core process transformation to a small select group of people uh, whether it's the IT folks or folks in by the way healthcare is the only industry in the world that still calls its technology people IT. Because that has a certain connotation, right? These are back office people that are doing back office things that don't really concern the business. That's silly. Every other industry on the planet, from retail to banking to airlines, the IT people are leading the charge. The business people are the IT people who are using technology to avoid cost or to increase revenue or make their customers love them more, right? Uh, healthcare is the only one where you they don't teach anything in medical school about IT. They don't teach anything in MHA programs about IT. I think that's the biggest thing that's missing in the education of both administrators and uh, and the medical folks. And then you suddenly are held captive to a very small portion of, uh, of your health system that supposedly knows everything about IT. And what they know is how to deploy an EHR. In my world, that sacred cow would mean that technology would only have two vendors, IBM and Microsoft. (laughs) Nobody else would be allowed, right? No Google, no Yahoo, no Snapchat, no OpenTable, nothing. Why? Because IBM and Microsoft would do everything. And that boggles my mind in terms of the lack of innovation is largely driven by the lack of acceptance that innovation can happen outside of the four walls of the enterprise or the tools they currently have. I think that's the biggest uh, hurdle, frankly, the mental hurdle to say innovation is widespread everywhere.
0: So speaking of that, let's talk a little bit. You alluded to this earlier, but as we discuss kind of barriers here, the hype right now, the hype versus the reality of generative AI. And so maybe that is a barrier. And as we talk about this, what should hospital system administrators be focusing their attention on when there is so much hype right now?
1: Yeah. So I, I do think the the hype is unwarranted in the short term, but it's warranted in the long term. And we can spend a lot of time on that in the future, um, or even uh, we can touch on it if we have time on this podcast. Remember, it technology is a servant used to solve hard business problems. So I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before or you don't know, but starting with what problem am I trying to solve? And what is the most scalable, most cost-efficient, long-term way of solving that problem typically involves, the, in this day and age, some form of AI. So I gave you all of these other examples that have nothing to do with large language models and chat GPT. The hype that's there now is largely because you can do what I call a parlor trick. You can go to oh, the chat GPT and you can type in is there God, and it comes back and says, I really don't know, I'm not in a position to tell you, or if you, you know, you, or it can write a story for you. And it is already transforming certain industries. And don't get me wrong, I think the ease with which even health systems access information, it's a huge revolution in how humans interact with computers. And that will continue to, to, to show up. But I'd hate for ChatGPT to write a diagnostic for me just yet. Right, I'd be very careful about that without it being filtered by some human being, hopefully a thoughtful MD who's who's, who's done this before a few times. All that being said, AI-assisted human decision-making is already here. Radiologists use this all the time to study images. If you think about protein folding and, and that being solved by alpha fold, these are very, very real advances. So if I were a health system right now, looking at it from any angle, I would start by being crisp about the problem I'm trying to solve. Things like, I'm trying to accommodate more surgical volume. I'm trying to give patients a better experience. I'm trying to reduce cost. I'm trying to fortify the fact that I have only so many nurses and I need to get so much done. And then go down the path of what are my alternatives to solving this problem? And I would be very surprised if at that top of the list, there was not an AI-based solution just because of the nature of the beast. AI is sort of like carbon. You know, every living being is made of carbon, and that's what every solution will end up requiring. And we can talk about hundreds of such
0: examples. So if every solution requires AI, as we wrap up this conversation, now let's talk about the balance. And you just kind of alluding to some of those examples too, of where you would use AI and where you'd be hesitant to use AI. Um, How do we ensure, how do hospitals ensure that the practice of medicine retains its humanity as we adopt all these AI solutions?
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, even there, I'll play devil's advocate for a second and say, as you've seen reports that um, AI-based tools can sometimes seem more sympathetic than even docs and and medical practitioners. And frankly, that's not that hard to believe, but because if I'm an irate curmudgeon surgeon or physician, very hard to change me. Much easier to train the AI to be a lot more pleasant by saying good dog, bad dog, when I do reinforcement learning on the AI. This isn't really about touchy-feely stuff, though. At first, can I solve the problem for the patient? So I'll give you a few examples. On the uh, profit side of the ledger, a radiologist maybe has seen 5,000 images in their life, and AI is probably trained on 5 million. So would I actually trust an AI to make a more informed decision based on the corpus of data it has seen and the amount of training it has had? I really would. Because at the end of the day, even that radiologist is kind of making an educated guess. The AI is making an educated guess based on a much bigger sample size of data. Now, if you take the next step, which is the interpretation of the statistical significance of either what the AI saw or the radiologist saw, I would still want to be able to speak to a human being about it. So it's it's a bit of a convoluted answer maybe that I would trust the fact that the people who are mo- most at risk on the planet, I believe, are the ones who are going to resist being helped by AI. Way before we're replaced, this idea that if a radiologist isn't using some form of guidance from a, an intelligence that has seen far more than they have would worry me. Why Why would that be the case given that this is available? At the same time, Personally, I would like to interact with the radiologist or the person interpreting those results and understand the human aspect of it. Because at the end of the day, there's one other big statement that may be kind of obvious, but let me state the obvious. Everything in medicine is probabilistic. There is no 100% anything, right? Unlike the laws of physics and mathematics, there are no laws of biology. As soon as you cut somebody open, there may be a 99.99% chance of something, but it's typically not a 100% chance. But it's a 100% chance that if I throw a ball up, it's going to come down. What that means is, if I can reduce the uncertainty based on using AI to predict things that are more likely than not, chances are the outcome will be better. Now, there's a whole host of emotion around this and patient experience around this that I still think for the longest time will require human beings. But in the back end, we will use more AI and we should use more AI to assist in the delivery of of care and the delivery of medicine and research and drug development and all of that sort of stuff.
0: Well, Sanjeev, what a fascinating discussion we've just had. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we want to thank Lean Toss, of course, for their support as an ACHE premier corporate partner. Uh, We thank you so much for listening today. As always, we'll catch you next time right here on the Healthcare Executive Podcast from ACHE. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org.